honest questions with honest answers. This is Unfiltered, brought to you by the Emergency Medical Minute. We're here this morning with Dr. Michael Hunt, one of our most esteemed faculty members here. Uh, Dr. Hunt, good morning. Good morning, Nick. How are you? <laughs> Very well. We're really, really happy to have you here. As we were talking earlier, the point of our discussion this morning is just to look back on a long, illustrious, distinguished career and uh, talk about uh, kind of where you've been and, and where you are and where you're going and uh, just learn uh, as much as we can uh, how to have a career just like yours. So uh, I'm just going to start from the beginning, essentially. Tell me about why did you get into medicine and what uh, what led you down this path initially? Well, yeah, thanks for having me, Nick, first off. I appreciate the opportunity. I, I don't know uh, how illustrious the career has been. That <laughs> certainly is for others to judge. It has felt long. And now as I approach the twilight with uh, anticipated retirement in three months, uh, it, it's nice to have the chance to look back and reflect a little bit. To answer your question, uh, going back, I think like most young kids, interest in science, interest in the application of science, trying to figure out how best I could do that. I think as I went through uh, high school, was very interested in medicine because my dad wanted me to pursue that career, though we have no medical people in mm -hmm. our family, not one. Uh, he thought I should be a dentist. I could not see that. <laughs> uh, but no uh, to the dentists out there. When I, uh, when I was in high school, uh, uh, one of the local family physicians, Sam Langstaff, started a program for the Littleton Public Schools to allow senior uh, students in high school to come and hear about medicine from a lot of the local physicians. Uh, this uh, happened at Arapahoe High School where I attended, but it also included students from Littleton and Heritage High Schools. Uh, as a result of that, helped uh, promote my interest further. Uh, to fast forward real quickly as a sidebar, uh, when I came back to Denver from D.C. Uh, in 95, uh, got involved with the program again and started teaching, and I have been Full teaching circle. every year uh, <laughs> at the program, and in addition to uh, another program that uh, developed at Chaparral and then went to Cherry Creek, so I've been involved with that. But uh, that put me on the path, so as I went into uh, college, it was a liberal arts college without a formal pre-med track, so you had to kind of craft your, your classes to meet the requirements. Uh, as I went through college, I was not entirely sure I wanted to continue that. I did pursue the process and as I got to the application and interview stage, came to see you, um, uh, I thought this is the school I wanted to go to if I went. My folks didn't have a lot of money. I went to college on a scholarship. I didn't want to burden my parents with additional uh, expenses for medical school since I had five younger brothers or sisters to follow. <laughs> so I, I wanted to find a school that was good and certainly so it was excellent and uh, affordable for me. Yeah. So I went to my interview at CU, and uh, I was a little bit wishy-washy. And when asked about my motivation, I said, you know, I'm not really sure. I really <laughs> like, uh, <laughs> really like uh, uh, coaching sports, and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm interested in that. Also some microbiology, lab work type stuff. Well, they took me to heart and declined to accept me that first year. <laughs> Uh, I ended up coming to Swedish as an ER tech. 
uh, at those days called an orderly, really no mm-hmm. EMT training. Yep. So uh, I spent a year uh, as an EMT or as an ER orderly here at Swedish. Also still coached lacrosse because I paid, played in college and then started a lacrosse team at my old high school. Okay. And uh, refereed high school basketball because I still like the sports stuff. So I did all that. But as I progressed through the uh, work process here at Swedish, again, was re-energized. So applied again and uh, started uh, CU the next cycle. Awesome. So you were mostly in the ER as an orderly? All okay, Exclusively. Exclusively in the ER. I did work one summer at Lutheran uh, as the uh, GU tech. <laughs> I put in more Foley catheters than anyone. So I did for the whole hospital. <laughs> so I still feel I have that as one of my <laughs> strong <man>. skill sets. <laughs> <laughs> did you put that on your CV? I declined to <laughs> inform people about that until this point, but probably it's too late now to make a difference. <laughs> So what was the ER like when you were an orderly? Wow. Uh, I mean, you've got now, because that's got to be almost 40 years of time span, right? Between uh, when you were an it's orderly exactly, and now? exactly 40 years. Uh, I'll, I'll tell you, even stepping back, growing up in the area, okay. uh, my first visit to the ER at Swedish was uh, in high school with a girlfriend who had stuck her hand between two dogs fighting. Got cut. Uh, treated at home, but uh, we're sitting in a movie theater and she's got throbbing pain and her, her hand's infected, so I'm going to take her to the ER. Mm-hmm. Uh, we come here, and in those days, you actually rang a doorbell uh, <laughs> on the back of the <laughs> ER, and some nurse came at night and opened the door and asked what we wanted. The ER, I believe, was covered by a, a variety of staff physicians, but it could be any specialty. At right. that time, emergency medicine in the mid-70s really was... Almost, this, yeah, non-existent, it, right? It's just its very decency. seminal stages. Yeah. And I don't know that there were any emergency-trained physicians at all who had completed emergency training right. in 1973 or 74. No, no. So, uh, I, as it turned out, we had a hand surgeon on call. worked out quite well for her. Uh, but that, that was my first experience. So ringing the doorbell, nurse in a white hat came to the back door to ask what we wanted. Uh, as I did my work as a tech, uh, of course, no, uh, EM, no training required. You just showed up, you mm-hmm. cleaned bedpans, you took equipment down to the central supply for cleaning. Uh, but it was a little bit more loose in those days in terms of what you could do. So fortunately, I had some wonderful mentors uh, who were emergency physicians who were trained in emergency medicine mm-hmm. by that time. Okay. And uh, as they understood my interest, along with two other uh, uh, orderlies who were with me, both went to see you with me at the same time, and both are emergency physicians. All from Swedish. All from Swedish. Uh, you may know Lee Shockley. Oh, yeah. So oh, yeah. Lee, Lee and I, uh, were, Lee and I grew up together. Lee and I were Boy Scouts. Uh, we were medical school roommates. And uh, Unbelievable. Know, to this day, one of my very, very best friends. Unbelievable. But uh, so uh, the physicians here would allow us a little more latitude. So actually got to sew patients and, you know, not really administer medications as we think of it today, but did get to be involved in a lot more patient care back then. Yeah. Awesome. <laughs> That's awesome. So you go to see you and... 
when did you know you wanted to be an ER doc? Well, I think really from my time as an orderly. From an orderly. I, yeah. You know, that's it's it's exciting. It's varied. It, you get some immediate gratification uh, from patient care. So yeah. that was always in yeah. my mind. And I think as I went through the training at CU and got to the clinical rotations in the third year, which was the more traditional two years of didactic, uh, third year is core uh, experiences in the hospital, and then your senior year doing kind of elective type stuff. Sure. Um, my third year in medical school, I was on an OBGYN rotation. We were rounding on patients, uh, discovered uh, a patient pulseless and apneic in bed in the GYN service. Mm-hmm. And as the most junior member of that team, looked around and my senior residents and junior residents and senior medical students were all just looking at one another, not knowing what to do. Sure. Um, pull the patient down on the floor, commence CPR. Uh, and it just struck me that, you know, that's being a doctor mm-hmm. for me. Uh, I, not to denigrate any other specialty, but the, the chance to intervene and knowing what to do at the right time right. Uh, really impacted me. I think sure. cemented the, the desire to continue that. Yeah, and their most critical moment of need. Mm-hmm. Sure. Awesome. And, and then you stayed close to home for residency, went to yeah, formerly yeah. Denver General. Yeah, I, it was a, a great experience as a medical student and uh, had the fortune to work with some real giants in emergency medicine. Yeah. Peter Rosen, John Marks, Peter Pons, Vince Markovchik, Steve Cantrell, uh, these incredible mentors. Titans, sure. And uh, while I was... Uh, a senior medical student, I was uh, looking around the country. I, I knew I wanted to do emergency medicine. Denver Health did not have a direct access into the residency program out of medical school. You had to do a separate unaffiliated internship and then reapply. Okay. I was sure I wanted to do it, so I was looking all around the country and looking at a variety of programs. Um, and coming back and talking to Peter one night, uh, told him what my plan was. And he said, well, I want to come here. And I said, but Peter, there's no guarantee I can get in here if I spend another year uh, doing an internship. And he was very frank with me and said, I can't promise you. I don't have the authority to promise you. But I will tell you, if you want to come here, you can. I took him at his word, yeah. changed all my plans, got a local internship in Denver for okay. a year, rolled the dice. And then when the match came the next year, only put down one program. Wow. That's particularly insightful given, I think now, I don't know, the average number of programs we see our med students applying to for residency is in the 40 to 50 range, just kind of colloquially. That's amazing. Um, where did you do your PGY one year here in Denver? Uh, at Press St. Luke's. Okay. And just a transitional internship, yeah. Yeah. which again afforded me the opportunity to come back to Denver Health as an intern and still do another rotation. Right. And, and hopefully cement my position with them to say, look, I have learned more stuff. I can still do it. Yeah, yeah. What was training at DG like back in the days of the Knife and Gun Club? You know, it was the most incredible experience. Um, we, uh, we, we seemed to see everything, and we seemed to be able to do everything. It was a very empowering experience, and especially to have those kind of mentors available to you to help guide you. Uh, was just, uh, uh, you know, something I couldn't have imagined. Um, it was uh, hard work, a lot of fun, great training. Still close to their classmates? Uh, I, not, 
not particularly everybody dispersed back in that yep. day. It was really hard to get a job in the Denver area. It's a very tight market. Yep. And uh, I think one other uh, individual in my class and I were the first students from CU to be accepted to the Denver Health Program. Uh, and he ended up going to Montana. Um, the uh, the one person I am close to, um, and and I'm gonna I just emailed him yesterday. He's coming out to Denver for ASAP. Uh, is Rich Wolf. Rich Wolf and I were chief residents together. Rich is the director at uh, Beth Israel Deaconess in Boston. So uh, still very excited to see Rich. But <laughs> everybody else is has somewhat dispersed. I I uh, have the opportunity to communicate with a few irregularly because uh, we hear each other's names in connection to uh, interviews or papers or something. Sure. So we'll talk sporadically, but it's really rich that, uh, that I'm closest to. Yeah, fair enough. Any good stories from DG off the top of your head? Oh, gosh. <laughs> Anyone that's stuck so, with all these years? So I was thinking about Peter and... Uh, as a uh, junior resident, uh, I was working overnight with him and one of our senior residents, and and uh, the, the senior resident's name was Bill Campbell. Bill, I think, has since gone on to uh, leave emergency medicine, actually, I think, do psychiatry. Really? But uh, <laughs> we were rounding... There's a fair bit of overlap yeah. there. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we were rounding in our OBS unit one morning after a night shift, so it's uh, Peter, Bill, myself, and could have been some other people. But as far as I was concerned, it was just us three. Mm-hmm. Uh, Bill was presenting a case about a patient who fell from standing height, facial injuries, and talking about the potential for spine injury. And Bill and Peter had a difference of opinion. And Bill and Peter got into such a heated argument that Neck veins were distended and spittle was flying. And I was trying to shrink him to a quarter <laughs> because these guys really scared me. Sure. And and I to this day I'm not sure what the resolution was. I don't think either of them backed down. <laughs> but five minutes later, Peter was saying, Hey Bill, let's go get breakfast. You know, it was all put aside. Yep. You know, you can have a difference of opinion that uh, is clinically based, medically oriented, but still maintain a personal relationship. Mm-hmm. I thought that was amazing. Yeah. Did you take that lesson with you? I mean, education and being a teacher has been such a big part of your career. I mean, it, it's been something from the time you were a coach before you even formally in medicine, you were a teacher and a coach. Did you learn things about being a teacher from your DG attendings from, I mean, who are some of the kind of the the biggest role models you can think of people who showed you how to be an educator and taught, you know, and and kind of fostered that in you. Yeah. I I think without a doubt that was John Marks. Um, John had a a great deal to do with that. And then um, was responsible for my decision to go into academic emergency medicine from the residency Mm -hmm. program. Um, and uh, ended up going to the George Washington, yep. uh, Georgetown program. Uh, and even while I was there, John uh, invited me to come and interview when he went to Carolinas uh, for a faculty position and was very happy to do it. At the time, you know, I, I told John I would, he'd be the one person I'd follow, 
but I didn't promise to follow him anywhere. <laughs> Caroline is a magnificent program. Sure. Uh, yeah, sure. Uh, at the time, though, I wasn't ready. I'd only been at GW for a couple of years, and I didn't think it appropriate to not give a little bit longer. So. Sure. But John was far and away the, the preeminent educator in my mind. And, and really an incredible patient advocate. And that's what I, I think I took away from that interaction with Bill and Peter and tried to apply in my educational teaching career. Hmm. What sort of things did he do as a teacher? That What did you hold on to, you know, that you find yourself sharing with your paramedic students now or with our scribes in the emergency department? Do you, do you, do you look back on things you learned from him and or, or techniques or approaches that he used? Well, I think he, he was uh, a very understated gentleman. Uh, he, he'd be able to educate you without being pejorative or punitive. Uh, I remember one time with a trauma patient going through the assessment and uh, finishing it, and then as he observed, and, and was very good about not uh, intervening with anything he wanted to do, uh, but uh, at the end said, did you listen to that guy's lungs? <laughs> well, I'm sure I did. I, but, but I, I usually know. go from A to C by going through B. But, <laughs> but if, if John asked me, I probably didn't. Right. Yeah. And, and, you know, that, you know, how I remember that now almost, you know, 35 years later. Right. So, holy cow, that stuck with me. Yep. Yep. So you finished training. And as you said, you, you choose the academic route. Right. What took you to D.C.? What, how did, what went into that decision? You know, that was a hard one. I, I, I felt that coming out of Denver General at the time, we consider ourselves the best program in the country, and we, I think we were certainly top three. Um, I really had my, my pick. Uh, it was very fortunate. So I did look across the country, um, and it really came down to uh, UCSD, and GW. And uh, I think the thing that, that really prompted my decision to go to GW was the opportunity. Visiting out there, there were so many things to do. It was very vibrant. Uh, one of the residents before me at DG, Ron Walls, mm-hmm. uh, had been there, uh, had gone from DG to GW, and just left GW to go up to Boston okay. um, right before I came out. But Ron was an influence. He had a lot of great things to say about it, seeing the program, seeing how vibrant they were. They had a uh, EMS degree program. I was very interested in that. Right. Um, they did uh, things internationally, uh, and it just seemed to be the biggest chance to do the most things. And I think that's what appeals to me for emergency medicine is the variety. Mm-hmm. So that variety presented at GW seemed to outweigh anything else. Yeah. My wife and I had lived here forever in Denver, and, and I thought, gee, this is a great time to, to get out and see something else. I actually was offered a position here in town before I left to do the medical directorship at Littleton Hospital. The kicker in that is that the hospital wasn't yet completed. <laughs> so I, I had a new baby, three months old. I had to find something to do. To, I don't know much, to, but there does have to be a hospital. <laughs> so, I'm sure they would have afforded me the opportunity to work, you know, at uh, one of their affiliate hospitals in the interim. But, uh, I, you know, I think the decision was good. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it, it helped give me some additional background and, and uh, formulate my 
my thought processes and, and how I wanted to conduct myself and what I wanted to do ultimately. You know, I think that decision is one that a lot of residents, and I think there's a fair number of residents in our listener group that uh, wonder that decision, community practice versus academic, uh, and you have now worked in both settings, and you had opportunities to work in both from the time that you were coming out of training. Were you always leaning one way or another? Did something in your training point you one way or another? How did you kind of ultimately settle on that, or was it just the appeal of the GW opportunity that drove you one way or another? Oh, I, I think I I struggle with it up until the very end, you know, really what I wanted to do. Uh, you know, in talking with John, I think I realized that if I was ever going to do academics, I should do it now. I should do it right out of residency, that it would be a much harder pathway to go into the private sector and then return. Though I will say, my good friend Lee Shockley did that. Yep. Lee, yep. Lee completed his residency in Oakland, went uh, up to Minnesota, actually interviewed with Lee in his program, uh, <laughs> but then came back, and it, it was it was an unusual situation. Uh, while I was still in D.C., uh, I would get opportunities to interview at other programs, and actually came back to Denver one time to do Grand Rounds and sat down with Vince, and we talked about me being the uh, residency director. But at the time, Denver had a residency requirement. You had to live in the city and county if you worked for the city and county. Okay. And I wasn't ready to commit to that. So I suggested a friend of mine who was actually in private practice but would be a great fit. And as a result, Lee came and took the, the role and was here for some 20 years as the residency yep. director. Right. So right. if I ever did one thing for that program, it was <laughs> to get Lee to come here. That's awesome. That's awesome. It's true. It's true. You've always been a good, good, uh, good person at connecting folks together. Uh, you know, one of the first time that I met Michael was in DC for ASEP uh, a couple years. It's got two years, two years ago two now, years, right? Yeah. Two years ago, uh, as you were holding court with your former DC <laughs> colleagues uh, in various <laughs> venues around the city, uh, into varying hours of the late evening together, um, and. Uh, do you, if you if you could just kind of think back on your time in DC and and what that time meant to you and uh, things things that you got to do people that you got to know and and what was it what was your time in DC like? Yeah, I I, uh, I still have wonderful relationships and friends from that even though it's been uh, twenty five years since I've been there. Um, coming as new faculty member, uh, Mark Smith and Rob Chesser gave me great opportunity to do things and basically said, it's carte blanche, it's whatever you want to do. Yep. And I was interested in the education program and I was still interested in the EMS. My um, EMS ride-alongs with the Denver General Paramedics were incredible. Mm -hmm. uh, so I wanted to continue that. I uh, served as the um, medical director for the EMS degree program with Craig Diatley as the director. Yep. Uh, great Craig opportunity to teach. You know, Craig's, Craig. a, Craig's a great connection of ours. Yeah. We're both lucky to know him. I'm sure you yeah. agree. Uh, absolutely. <laughs> so, I, so I got to do that. And they had a very interesting program. They were doing the medical management for a travel insurance program. And uh, one of the formal faculty members at GW had this program in D.C. And, uh, you know, as you know, people sign up for travel insurance when they go away and some people get sick and some people get injured. And when that happened, those cases would come through the D.C. office. We'd review their care, the appropriateness, 
be concerned certainly as an insurance advocate for the cost and decide if care was appropriate, patient could stay, patient needed to come back to the United States. Mm -hmm. When the patient needed to come back, either one of the faculty or one of our residents would go retrieve the patient and, and ex escort them in their expatriation. I, I'd never traveled. My first plane trip was when I was a, a senior in high school to go out to Northwestern to look at the, at the campus and the football program. So this was a great <laughs> opportunity for me to travel and go around the world. And it, it was. It was magnificent. You, got to see, you had some insight as to the, the business of medicine through the insurance program. Mm -hmm. uh, but you also got to deliver patient care and help to facilitate that. So I, I did get the chance to go to dozens of foreign countries and was an amazing experience. Uh, as a young junior attending really i mean within your first couple of leaving years my wife and baby at home <laughs> traveling around the world yeah that, that went over quite well uh, though uh and and then actually we uh we we moved on to a second program uh and then ultimately started doing the medical management for the peace corps and okay. the military sea lift command so and then some ocean going fishing vessels uh, all these kind of remote, isolated, austere situations right. where medical care wasn't directly available, but we could communicate with them, a lot of times just by fax, uh, to uh, get information and uh, help guide care and decision-making. Right, lower quadrant pain. Stop. Next line. <laughs> <laughs> Don't. Nearest general surgeon, uh, 1,000 miles, miles away. away. Stop. <laughs> 48 hours. Yeah. That sort of thing. But it was, it was very interesting. Oh, that's awesome. I think that global approach appeals to a lot of people in emergency medicine. Do you have any particular favorite places or trips that you went on that you could share that you remember? Yeah, uh, I, I will just, before I answer that, say that uh, GW has developed a, a global initiative. And uh, they, they do have, uh, I believe, uh, fellowship training in that uh, where uh, their residents are or folks can come into the program and, and spend some time internationally as an outgrowth of yep. that experience. Um, it's called the Michael Hunt yeah. Memorial <laughs> Memorial don't Fellowship. Don't say memorial. <laughs> just, yeah. Uh, so the, uh, I think when some of the more interesting places uh, went to uh, South Africa to retrieve a young woman who had had a Jeep rollover with a cervical spine injury and was ventilator dependent. Um, the timing was amazing. Went down there and went to Johannesburg the week that Nelson Mandela was being released from wow. prison. Uh, fast forward, wow. you know, in, you know, in 30 years, I, I, I was down again in South Africa visiting my daughter who was studying down there. And uh, as part of our trip and travels, we got a chance to go out to Robben Island and see his prison cell. Powerful. But... Uh, that notwithstanding, going back to that time period, uh, uh, the, the woman was uh, severely injured, ventilator dependent, had to bring her back from South Africa to Vancouver. So required, you know, setting up ventilators in a commercial airline uh, and then, you know, staying up with her the whole trip to, to manage and monitor her, get her back to the United States, switch over to a private air ambulance, and then doing the same thing uh, from somewhere on the East Coast up to Vancouver. Wow. Uh, 
uh, you know, it's a, it's a challenging thing, yeah. uh, you know, in a setting where it's just you and, you know, your, your, your one patient's over a very intensive care setting mm-hmm. over thousands of miles uh, with no backup. In a commercial airline. Uh, for the vast majority of the trip, which was quite interesting. And Lufthansa set up some curtains and knocked down some seats, and we're in the back. So everybody who walked to the bathroom wanted to peek over the curtain to see what's going on in there. Boop, I don't know if the, the uh, ventilator sounds were the same back in the day, but... Yeah. Sure it was a nice little I, I, I always wanted to put that as my uh, my ringtone on my phone. I could never figure out how to do it. <laughs> I am not breathing. <laughs> That's awesome. So, how long did you spend in DC overall? Uh, a little over seven years. Okay. Um, I uh, had actually uh, been uh, had just been in Russia at St. Petersburg and got a chance to do the first ACLS class in Russia after the curtain came down. And then uh, was in Saudi Arabia and Riyadh at King Faisal Hospital. The university had an affiliation with a couple others, I think Yale and Baylor and one other uh, um, institution, and they were going to provide services to the King Faisal Hospital to upgrade and provide advice and recommendations. And my job was to go to the emergency department and do some of the EMS stuff. So I was over there for about six weeks, and, Whoa! Uh, how old is your what's daughter? That? How old is your daughter at this time? Well, all my kids were born at that time. Okay, this yeah. is down. This is toward the end. Of the the, uh, the youngest was mm, so she would have been about eight months at the time. Okay. Uh, and, and interestingly, um, you know, we were we were doing a, a, a grand rounds. I had you know showing them how they want to put on a grand rounds program. So we we got satellite time. The kingdom had great resources, and uh, so we were doing a satellite broadcast back to D.C. and doing a conjoint Grand Rounds. Wow. Um, 1990, when is this? Mm, I want to say five. Okay. Wow. Beginning of 95. Yeah, that's cutting edge. Um, I hadn't talked to my wife <laughs> other than a few internet communications, mm-hmm. and you always had you know, you always had to be very careful about what you said and what could be said. Uh, so the... So GW was nice enough to bring her in to the studio, so I got to say hi to my wife and do that kind That's of stuff. That's amazing. The Skype, Skype before decades before Skype. Uh, the, un- unfortunately, the one communication we did have uh, one time, my wife said, "Oh yeah, our youngest Nancy has a fever and she's very lethargic." That's not the word you want to hear ten thousand miles away. The side of the Your world. daughter is oh. febrile and lethargic. So. Uh, uh, you know, it took great luck. It was, uh, it was just RSV. She really wasn't lethargic by our <laughs> definition of lethargic. I don't think this word means <laughs> the same. What you think it means? You and I don't have the same understanding of that word. <laughs> that was Aww. a great experience. So I, um, I I came back from there and actually was contacted by the physicians here at Swedish. They called up and said, "Hey, would you like to come back and work for us?" So, uh, you know, I was talking to my wife the other day. I've been very fortunate. I've never had to seek a job. Um, I've been right place, right time. Mm-hmm. Uh, been fortunate that job opportunities have come to me. When they reached out, were you you weren't even looking? Or? No, not not at all. I actually had just become an associate professor mm-hmm. at uh, GW, so I was 
kind of on that path right and see where it would go not really a researcher had applied for some american heart association grants turned down uh you know it was a little bit disheartened for that so i thought my my track would really be education at that sure. point so you're traveling the world and you're living in pretty pretty incredible life as an early em attending and you get a call to come back home right. essentially and uh, how did you weigh that decision? It's a return. It's a, not a return. It's really a, a new fork in the road for you to go back to, to go into community practice. Uh, uh, and, but it's home. So how did you kind of weigh that? And, and ultimately, what made you kind of pull the trigger to come back here to beautiful Colorado? And that decision was probably as hard as making a decision as to what I wanted to do after residency. Uh, we did. We sat down and we weighed the pros and cons. I had a great career uh, professionally, uh, but it was somewhat in my mind a little selfish. My kids were getting older. Uh, I felt like I needed to spend more time with them. Both my parents and my wife's parents uh, lived in Denver and still do. Mm-hmm. Uh, I thought this is, and, and very young. I mean, um, my wife's mom was 20 when she had her, and my mom was 20, so our, our parents were very young. So I wanted our kids to know their grandparents and spend some time with them. Mm-hmm. Um, the uh, one of the the kickers was I was uh, playing a softball game uh, in Georgetown and getting ready to go out on the field. And my son was with me; he was probably six at the time. And uh, so I'm putting on my shoes. I said, "Hey, there's a bunch of kids out playing. Why don't you go play with them until we start the game?" And he said, "Dad, they might have guns." And it was, mm. it was a very telling moment for me because at that time, D.C. was known as the murder capital of the world. Right. Uh, it was, this is the 90s, mid-90s, yeah, right? Yeah, yep. exactly. Very violent. And gosh, I just really don't know if I want my kids growing up in this environment. Sure. So lots of good things here. My family was here. Yeah. had a, a couple of siblings still here in the, uh, in the Denver area, our folks. And... Um, they also offered me the opportunity to be the EMS medical director for all of Health One. So at that time, several hospitals, no freestandings, uh, <laughs> but lots of agencies. Uh, so I, I would come back and do halftime as the EMS medical director for Health One and then halftime clinically. So I actually split my time between here and Aurora doing my initial shifts. Okay. And then would do okay. administrative work. With, at, at, you know, at its peak, uh, over those first five years that I did that, I think some 30 agencies and over a thousand EMTs and paramedics under my license. Wow. So it was a very vibrant, robust uh, program. Absolutely. Time. In a city that's always been, you know, on the forefront of EMS education and, and kind of really pushing the envelope for EMS. Yeah, it was, a, you know, the, the uh, you know, giving a plug to the, the uh, physician advisor uh, group in Denver who really have done amazing work to create protocols and oversight for the Denver paramedics and EMTs. I think it's really produced an amazing uh, organization and network throughout the metro area community. That's great. I think EMS, you know, is something that so many, uh, well, we all interact with. I think it's something we generally all enjoy and that education part of it becoming a 
you know, it's how much pre-hospital stuff were you doing in DC, uh, or was it more kind of internationally, globally focused? Uh, you know, I did work with uh, paramedics. I uh, the the medical director at DC asked me to be on an advisory board for the for the city for the ambulance bureau. Um, we did do education and training, continue education for the paramedics through our EMS degree program. Uh, we did continue education for the Secret Service. I got to get involved with them, get involved with a couple of uh, inaugurals, got to go out to the Secret Service training sites. Uh, it was all great stuff as a, as a young ER That's a doctor. unique pre-hospital medicine So experience. it was a little <laughs> bit different, yeah. So my EMS is, you know, in South Africa and Australia and... <laughs> you know, Eastern Europe and then, you know, with the Secret Service. <laughs> so it was, it was uh, different. But, uh, you know, the most of our my interaction with them was really the training through the EMS degree mm-hmm. program and then right. uh, a lot of the recertification stuff for local paramedics. So then as you come here and then you're dedicating now a full half of your time to this and you did that for a long time and you're still doing EMS things. We were just talking about your ongoing paramedic training program, which you plan to still be involved in, even, yep. even once the, Going the sun has set on your on my illustri- clinical, illustrious career. clinical career. But can you take a moment to kind of reflect on what that has meant to you personally and professionally to have spent so much time, decades of training these, these paramedics? Yeah, oh, it's, uh, it's incredibly rewarding and humbling um, to, to know that you had some impact on individuals and to get to know these people. Because these people really are heroes. They, they sacrifice so much. They don't get paid incredibly well. They spend hours doing their craft that are more onerous than our hours, as bad as we may think, uh, under more austere conditions. You know, in the rain, in the mud, in the dark, in the cold, uh, trying to deliver the best medical care possible. So just the chance to uh, work with them, help with them with their early training and ongoing education uh, is probably the most rewarding part of my whole career. Um, I will say that, uh, you know, in addition to these other crazy things that I've gotten to do, I did have the chance to uh, get involved with chemical and biological warfare education and training uh, in D.C. Um, while I was out there, a cache of World War I weapons was found by an American university and uh, had the opportunity to work with the military in a cleanup program. And that springboarded into a, a program with the Department of Defense and the Department of Justice uh, doing training around the world with friendly countries as well as our own military installations about different weapons of mass destruction. And then that went on to work with the State Department for anti-terrorism assistance and uh, got a chance to go to Greece and help prepare for the Olympics and lots of different stuff. So that emergency medicine pre-hospital care stuff is very peripheral to central EMS stuff, but uh, really one of the more interesting things. Yeah, it's limitless. I mean, if you've got the opportunity to do it. So you mentioned the Olympics in 96. So tell me about that. How did that come about? And if you have any stories from Atlanta, I'd love to hear them. Oh, uh, great experience. Um, While I was still in D.C. before I came back to Denver, uh, I was in contact with a really great emergency physician down in Atlanta area named Jim Ellis. Jim had the contract to uh, do the medical care for the Olympics. Uh, 
I had done venue medicine in D.C. I was the medical director for RFK Stadium, so did a lot of the, or did all of the um, Redskins games, did a lot of concerts, did the World Cup there, and was talking with Jim about some of the things in my experience that I had learned and, and come to put into practice for mass gatherings and venue type medicine. And uh, as a result of our conversations, uh, Jim was very gracious to extend an invitation to come down and work at the Olympics. And he gave me the opportunity really to do whatever I want. So being very <laughs> greedy, I said, I'm going to do, do men and women's basketball, and I'm going to do men and women's gymnastics, and I'm going to do track and field. Marquee, marquee events. Boom. <laughs> so uh, so I, I got my license down in Georgia for that purpose and went down and spent two weeks. Uh, got to got to be on the floor for a myriad of events. Uh, got to work in the uh, athletes clinic in the village. Um, very interesting, giving all of the dental exams to the entire Romanian women's basketball team <laughs> who did not have access. Uh, <laughs> you know, uh, curiously, we would put out a. Uh, so your dad is proud after all because he had wanted you to be a dentist. There, I got my the dental experience. So. Dad, look what I've done. Finally, I've made him proud. He's finally proud of you. Congratulations. <laughs> Comes full circle. Uh, uh, one of the the funniest things was every uh, every morning we put out a little fishbowl on the the counter in the clinic in the athletes' village in the clinic. Uh, full of condoms, mm-hmm. and every night they were gone. <laughs> I, I don't think they were all being used that day. I think a lot of them ended up in suitcases going back home. But it was it was quite uh, amusing to, <laughs> to see that. that, that next, next up on the emergency medical minute: <laughs> stories of the Olympic Village. <laughs> uh, but uh, you know what? There were uh, I, I was rooming with. Uh, uh, physician Anthony McIntyre, who was one of our former residents, and, and we were rooming together. It, you know, it was during the the time when the Olympic Village bombing occurred. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were we were both uh, asleep, and his pager kept going off throughout the night. Dad, come! What's going on? And we come to learn, even though we weren't worth that, both weren't actively working, that uh, he was being paged for that uh, that explosion and that mm-hmm. bombing. Um, that was a real surreal scene to, to visit it afterwards and to go by and, and to experience that. I had the same kind of surreal scene when I was in DC. I was, uh, the American association, uh, AMA, I was the AMA student representative from CU gone back to meetings in DC and I was walking by the Washington Hilton up a, a ramp towards the door for the meeting and I got a terrible deja vu experience. I'd never been to D.C. before. And then I realized this is a flashback to the assassination attempt on Ronald Reagan. Sure. And uh, it's exactly where it occurred. Uh, so the same kind of deja vu experience, if you could have that, seeing mm-hmm. the video coverage of the bombing and then going to the uh, the village site to yeah. see was, was very interesting. I will say one of the, the more enjoyable experiences was that uh, we had worked 14 days straight at the at the venues, and Anthony and I said we're going to go out and get barbecue, and we uh, just picked a place at random, sat out on a porch, nobody else around, and then four guys sit down next to us, and I look over, and I see these 
two corporate type executives and this gentleman who I assume was a bodyguard. And then this athlete who had uh, veins on his thighs as big as my thumb. <laughs> and I said, oh my gosh, I'm going to. So I grabbed a napkin and a pen and I, I, I presented it to him. I said, would you sign an autograph for my son? And the erstwhile bodyguard said, he ain't signing nothing for nobody. <laughs> Okay, but he was very gracious, and he he, not even Doctor Michael Hunt. Are you? I'm sorry. Maybe maybe I didn't make it clear who I was. So, but uh, the athlete was very gracious and said, "Yeah, give it to me." So he signed it uh, to Andrew Michael Johnson. Unbelievable. And then the and I thought this is very bizarre because my recollection was four years earlier Michael Johnson got food poisoning right before his 400 meter event. And here he was eating barbecue (laughs) the night before the 400-meter finals. (laughs) Okay, so next day, I'm down in the tunnel underneath the stadium when the athletes are coming, getting ready to come out for the 400. And and I'm standing next to Michael Johnson, and I look down, he's got those gold shoes. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking, I don't think even that barbecue is going to hold him. (laughs) Nope. Nope, and he threw him in the crowd when he was done. I remember watching that when I was incredible eight, eight or nine years old. Yeah, and uh, he won the two hundred and the four hundred. Yeah. I think yeah. That, that event. Yeah, it's uh, um, you know that's that's what emergency medicine affords you is that opportunity to do some incredible things. It sounds like he soaked it up in your seven uh, years again, in DC. <laughs> again, very fortunate to you know work with some amazing people. I, as a matter of fact, my uh, my mentor for uh, doing a lot of that. Uh, chemical biologic warfare was a former uh, EMS student. Myra Socker uh, was one of my students, uh, older than me and wiser than me. Uh, and uh, she... For the she, record, not sure that's possible. Go yeah. ahead and put that in the, in the dictation there. <laughs> but she, uh, she uh, helped guide me and, and bring me on. So uh, we did a lot of uh, work together, you know, to get involved with that clean, military cleanup program. And then uh, do a lot of um, uh, contract work for governments and installations around the country in terms of planning and preparedness and doing scenarios. Uh, just, just great experience. Incredible, and, and all because she was one of the students in the program. Yep. Uh, so she gave me that opportunity. Small world and. Uh, even when you say you have a thousand paramedics underneath your license at a given time, it's still a small world, even when the numbers seem big. Yeah. Um, as you think back, speaking of that small world, as you think back on your time back here at Swedish, since you've been here, how have things changed? You can take that in whatever direction you want. <laughs> but uh, just, you know, how how is the practice of emergency medicine different today than it was even when you first started here back in 95? Is that is right. when you I came, came back, back in 95, yeah. Okay. yeah. So just kind of reflect on that, and, and were you struck by anything in particular? Yeah, I think, uh, I think people like you who come up since I was educated are much brighter and better trained. I, I <laughs> really sure. feel that. I see my partners, and I'm, I'm in awe of their capabilities and their knowledge. And I think, you know, their compassion. I think uh, it's a much more patient-oriented and friendly environment. Uh, I think growing up in training years ago, we were really more directed towards medicine and the application and the outcome and not really 
always considering the, the patient's needs and their emotional state. Not to say we ignored it, but I think there's much more emphasis on it now. Uh, additionally, the advent of electronic medical records was huge. Um, and, you know, growing up, it was always scribbling a few notes on the chart. Uh, we had a, a very rudimentary uh, electronic system when I was a resident. Um, didn't really have that as uh, attending at GW, but uh, once we got back uh, to Denver and moved through the transcription to um, uh, the T-system type program mm -hmm. or his paper T-system and then finally electronic medical records made a, a big difference. I, I suddenly realized that I did not train uh, in emergency medicine as a typist. And my skills in that regard <laughs> still are quite lacking. Uh, I see some of my partners who can do 60 words a minute. I'm thinking, I wish I could do that. It would make my life easier. Uh, but uh, thank goodness for, for scribes who, yep. Yep. who do help me because I would not survive without them. And then I think, you know, the, the advent of the technology has been incredible. I mean, when you look at things like TPA, uh, mm -hmm. I'll never forget when it, you know, the, it was first being argued as to the efficacy and risks of it. Yep. I uh, uh, was invited to be at a conference, uh, a pro and con type thing uh, with Steve Cantrell. And, and Steve was anti-TPA and I was pro-TPA. <laughs> and I had to present the argument uh, effectively. And I think I did, though. In the back of my mind, I really wasn't sure I, about the early data. studies were pretty it inconclusive. Was, it was a little Nins, bit shaky. Nins was like, Ooh, you know. Yeah. But I, uh, uh, I, I think those kind of things, um, you know, certainly the improvement in stroke and cardiac work, uh, it's been incredible. Yeah. What's one thing you would change? Oh, gosh, I'd have to ponder that for a while. You know, I think coming back to Denver really did afford me that time to be with my family, you know, mm -hmm. to watch my kids grow up and to be involved in their lives. So I can't say that I, I, would, I would almost want to say I wish I didn't work as much, but I don't think I work too much. Um, if I could change one thing, I would probably be more proactive in the, in the management of our practice in that, uh, I, in my mind, and this is not denigrating towards anyone in any physician, but I, I do feel that medicine has uh, abrogated the responsibility of controlling medicine. I think we have relinquished a lot of the control to administrative personnel. I think that we have focused on improving the specialty and delivery of medical care, but putting time and energy into that has let us be lax in the, in the administrative control. And I think now, there's a lot more administrative control of medical care than most of us are comfortable with. And I think it's hard for us, now that the camel's nose is under the tent, the barn door's open, whatever analogy you want to use, it's mm -hmm. harder harder to 
to regain some of our our control. And I think that's what physicians do. Physicians like to be in control. They like to be determinants of their fate uh, and to have relinquished some of that for me is, you know, I, I think a, a, a small regret. Yeah. But, you know, that's our own fault. You know, as one of uh, our partners, Dave Rosenberg, say, you get the government you deserve. <laughs> and, you know, if you don't take responsibility, you don't take action, and you let things happen, yep. then things will happen without your involvement. Take note of that, Emergency Medical Minute listeners. <laughs> it's free advocacy advice right there. Powerful, powerful stuff. Anything that you want to talk about, Michael, in particular, as you look back on your long, and I've got some more questions, but I don't, I don't want to necessarily be the one who drives it all the way. I, this is a, this is a testament and a testimonial to your career. And well, it's, it's very narcissistic, is what it is. You know? <laughs> we invited, it's, for the everybody. record, we invited Michael to be here. We did not, he did not approach us. This was a, this was an intentional no. effort on our parts to make sure that we took at least. There's never enough time to, to reflect on all the the things you've done, but to, to take a dedicated period of time. But I, I would ask you if there's anything in particular you wanted to talk about or as you look back, things that uh, themes or topics that you couldn't imagine your career without, you know. Um, so feel free to take the floor. If Well, you know, everybody likes to talk about themselves. I'm getting a little bit nervous about that now having talked for however long we've done this. <laughs> uh, we'll edit it down. Don't worry. Okay. So, good. Oh, yeah, we'll edit it all down. Good. Don't we'll we'll go to three minutes. That'll be exactly like two and a half minutes of content <laughs> by the time this is all said and done. <laughs> uh, I, I think, uh, you know, I, I always have advocated the, taking the position of just say yes. So if you're given an opportunity, uh, take it. You know, because you never know where that opportunity might lead. So, being as long as it's not illegal or moral or personally detrimental, <laughs> then why not uh, take a leap and, and see what something new might afford you? So I think that's been the big thing for me. I've been given opportunities and for the most part willing to take a chance at them. And again, for the most part, they've been very successful or beneficial or enlightening. You know, whatever return I get has typically been positive. So I think... You know, now I'm going to move on after uh, finishing clinically. I, uh, I was, I've been doing, been back at the EMS uh, education for the last five years, mm -hmm. um, doing some medical director work for some uh, agencies, but uh, mostly spending my time at the educational program. And now have been offered a, a job uh, to do that regularly. Uh, Three-quarter time, not full day. No weekends, no nights, no holidays. The dream. Uh, yeah. And, the dream. And, and I can still do that. I can still teach and educate and be involved in training. Uh, that's what I'm really excited about moving forward. So one thing that I think a lot of us struggle with, um, particularly as we say yes to things, uh, and I think that's a great perspective about, you know, actively going after opportunities that present themselves, is how do you balance that with, taking care of your family at home. Sounds like you've had a family that's been very understanding of your professional pursuits and supportive of that, but it's obvious, there's obviously a pull there. There's always a tug, uh, you know, about time with family and time at home versus pursuing professional things. And any insight that you have on that, I know that's a topic that a lot of us struggle with or, or at least uh, deal with on a daily basis. Yeah, again, you know, the decision to come back here was largely family-oriented, so I could spend time with my kids and be involved with them. 
But that's not to say that uh, I haven't been incredibly busy doing all the professional things, clinical work and working with the EMS program. Uh, the, all the credit goes to my wife. She certainly sacrificed uh, a great deal to allow me to do what I do and has taken over the, the vast responsibility of uh, helping the kids on a day-to-day -day basis. I, I got the, you know, the, the easy part. I got the dessert. I got to you know, coach them in sports and go to their sporting activities and take them camping and do all the fun stuff. You know, she had the day-to-day -day discipline uh, she was a teacher and stayed home to take care of the kids. She had the responsibility of getting them to school, getting them to their practices, getting them home to their activities. Uh, and she really did yeoman's work to, to make the family run effectively and efficiently. Thank you for that. I know that's something that's very powerful for a lot of us about needing the support of, of a significant other at home. I can't say enough about that. I'm, uh, you know, anything I say is inadequate. In that regard. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Well, we're excited for you for the next stages of your career. Many, many thanks for being here today. I mean, we could, we could pick your brain for hours and hours and hear stories upon stories upon stories from all the years. But thank you. Thank you personally for being so approachable and welcoming to me as a new member of the, the team here. Uh, as one of the first people I met from Swedish, you've always been one of the most approachable, collegial, and welcoming people that we've had here. And I know that you've treated all of our associates and partners in the same way over the course of your decades and decades of service. And so thank you personally and on behalf of everyone else and on behalf of all the thousands of paramedics and med students and scribes and co-residents and junior residents and co-attend and all the other providers that you've you've taught and uh and molded over the years thank you well i appreciate it i i, I would take issue with one of those comments and that is i think if you talk to most of my paramedics and paramedic students they would not really see me as welcoming and i'll tell you between <laughs> you and me and whoever listens you know it has been my goal to make their interaction with me the, the toughest sure because I want them to to be able to handle any situation so if they're if I'm the toughest with them then everything else should hopefully be easier yep so I, I do still receive comments that when paramedics come in to do patient handoffs in the room go oh why does Hunt have to be in there oh, I, <laughs> you know, I, oh he's so he always got a scowl on his face and he's always criticizing me. You know, but I, I really I just want to see them be better. Yep. And and you know, if that works and they think I'm a jerk because of it, I'll, I'll accept that as long as it's improving patient care and delivering the best possible. I think I've mellowed a little bit. I try not to be like that so much. But but I, I think by and large that's that's a a feeling that many of the paramedics have because I, I am, I do want to hold them to a high standard. Nothing wrong with that. That sounds like a, a true a coach. That sounds like an athletics invested coach. If I've ever heard one going back to your early football and lacrosse days. 
I hadn't thought of that, but I think that's probably <laughs> apt. It could be where it's from. It could be where it's from. All right. Well, thank you, Michael, for everything. Um, we'll take a break now. And then ask the real tough questions. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Then be prepared for that. Now you just soften true, me up with a few body the true blows. true ball, ball busters coming. Body blows. Stay tuned. Here comes the uppercut. <laughs>